Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of WEMCAST. As always, I am one of your hosts, Dr. Shauna Pandya, physician from Canada, lover of all things extreme environment related. Today on the podcast, we are going to answer the question, what exactly is a space nurse anyways? And with me, I have the perfect person to answer this question, a dear friend, collaborator, and a person with a stellar background, if you'll forgive the pun, Ms. Star Schroeder. She goes by Star Schroeder Astro RN on Twitter. So I think she's very well versed to answer this question. She has a background in critical care, emergency care. She is a fellow graduate uh, of the scientist astronaut program graduate uh, from the International Institute for Astronautical Sciences. She is my co-author and collaborator on our recently published literature review on medical guidelines for commercial suborbital spaceflight. Her book chapters include uh, topics such as space nutrition, the future of spacesuits, the lunar environment, and she is also the chair of Possum 13, a not-for-profit organization that promotes careers in space and space exploration to women and underrepresented groups. So I think you'll agree with me, we have found quite the perfect person to answer this question. Star, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So let's get into it. You on Twitter um, go by Star Schroeder, Astro RN. Um, you have a very apt first name. So you started off in critical care. Um, how exactly did you get into space nursing anyways? So space has been a dream of mine since I was a child. Um, and it really wasn't a career path that I felt like uh, was accessible to me or not necessarily not accessible, but just um, not an easy career path for me to follow from the beginning of my career. Um, and I, I had wanted to be a nurse, so I went into nursing. I kind of left the space dream behind, just thinking, oh, that's, that's for engineers and um, NASA astronauts and you know professional people who can uh, do things with a background that I don't necessarily have. So, um, my career in nursing, I like you said, I started out in the ICU and the emergency room. Um, so I had a lot of critical care experience, and I'm currently in urgent care. Um, and several years back, probably 2017, I decided that um, we I relocated to Pennsylvania, and I'm not that far from Goddard, NASA. And I thought, you know it's drivable. I should probably check into that, see if there's anything there that nurses could do. I figured that, you know, with a med ops team, there had to be a spot for nursing in that environment. And as I started to look for those positions, I quickly realized that it really just wasn't a thing. Um, so we all know that, you know, we had Dee O'Hara, who was the nurse for a lot of the earlier astronauts, Mercury astronauts, Apollo. And um, you know, so there are nurses that have worked in the space sector, but it's not very common. Um, and it's not something that really is developed. So um, I really, I thought I, I was discouraged. And so I started looking online for opportunities. And that's when I ran into Project Possum. And the one thing that really caught my mind, or that caught my eye, um, there were two things about it, really. One was that it said, be a participant, not a passenger. You know, just it's it's kind of like this is this is science. Um, you're participating in science. And the other thing was that there was a bioastronautics track. 
So when I read the definition of what their bioastronautics track was, I thought, wow, this really fits into medicine. It's the human body. It's the study of, you know, space, the, the effects of space on the human body. And as I thought about it more, went through my training, got more involved, I thought, you know, the medical field here on Earth is a very multidisciplinary field. And traditionally, space medicine has been reserved for medical doctors. And um, I can understand the reasoning behind that, but I see as, as space expands and the access for space expands, how an interdisciplinary team becomes more necessary, especially as we go on longer missions, as we try to um, produce settlements, as we, as we go further and further in our exploration, multidisciplinary teams just make sense, mirroring what we have here. And so my goal really was to just pioneer that path and develop what that looks like and really try to define what that is for people that are, are interested in it and, you know, I think a lot of people are discouraged because nursing isn't considered a STEM degree. Although we have a lot of um, chemistry background, we have a lot of, you know, research background. We're involved in a lot of things that are STEM related. Um, but it's, it's just kind of one of those barriers that we haven't been able to get past. And I think we're just at the point where people feel that that's a possibility. And so that's how I ended up here. So really, I, I would love to just define it and and forge the path forward for future. You've talked about your passion for helping expand this field, helping integrate the roles of nurses into space medicine, operational space medicine, post-landing operations, um, uh, deep space exploration class missions. What is your vision? Are there are there specific things that you're passionate about? What would you what are some of the things you would like to see um, space nurses start to do, start to be trained for? Absolutely. So I think that over the years the idea and the abilities of nursing uh, have evolved, right? So if you think back to the Apollo and the Mercury uh, days, it they very much were um, viewed as, and I'm not saying this is the reality of what they did, but they very much were, were viewed as just helpmates, you know, like they very much were there um, as support. And, and it still is that way, but the difference is that critical care nursing and emergency nursing and extreme medicine nursing has evolved so much. Um, the training that nurses have, have received or that they do receive has evolved so much and our roles in stabilization, triage, and maintenance of patients has come so far. And so some of the things that I think, I think nurses are in a really unique position because they're one of the only careers in the medical field that can meet the patient at the door. Um, and I'm talking like a critical patient, meet the patient at the door of the hospital, triage them, stabilize them, be an integral part of the team that's doing that um, and providing life-saving measures or emergency measures and then follow them through their stay, through their critical part, through their recovery, through their discharge and really help them um, even through rehab and recovery. So it's one of the very few 
um, medical fields that can meet you at the door and and make sure you get out of it all in a continuous the continuity of care right so I think given that um, as we explore more uh, there will be more need for medical care. I mean, space med ops in space is going to, I think, explode. Um, if you're on a long journey, uh, you're going to need people who are there with you. It's going to be harder to manage from the ground. Um, if you are in a settlement, like let's say that we settle them, put a settlement on the moon, right? Or we have people going frequently to the moon. Um, having a MedOps team that mirrors the Earth's team is going to be critical um, because the same issues that arise here will arise there to a certain degree, especially as we move away from people who are highly trained, highly screened, um, and, and very rigorously tested individuals onto civilians who maybe have had less training, who maybe have more comorbidities or more health problems. As we move into those populations, the need for a multidisciplinary med, med ops team is, is going to become critical. The other thing is that nurses have evolved so much in their ability to perform research over the years that um, Really, I think nurses are, are in a prime position to be able to collect biomed biomedical data on civilians who are flying. So we have Virgin Galactic now, we have Space um, X, who is going to fly their first orbital mission. We have um, Blue Origin, who just flew. So as we start seeing more and more civilians fly, it raises the question for what is risk and what is informed consent for people who are not highly trained, who are not rigorously tested, who have multiple comorbidities or maybe even things they don't know about and creates a situation for more emergency situations, right? So gathering data, monitoring those space passengers, whatever you want to call them, whether you call them tourists or, or astronauts, whatever you want to call them, those space participants, um, the medical data that we can collect and analyze for them is only going to make space flights safer. So I think that, you know, research and multidisciplinary team development would, are the two things that I see as being beneficial. And then, you know, um, on suborbital flights or the four-day orbital flights, having someone on board potentially who can respond to emergencies, um, that's another field that I would love to see developed as well. So this seems like the perfect time, just building off what you just said, to talk about um, research, um, specifically research related to commercial spaceflight, research that you and I have done. Um, so in the introduction, I mentioned we just published our paper on medical guidelines for commercial suborbital spaceflight. Um, and this really ties back to the greater question of accessibility um, because, you know, some of these spaceflight providers like Virgin Galactic are saying, so safe your grandmother could fly. And then at the other end of the spectrum, um, we're seeing, you know, extremely rigorous selection for um, governmental space agency astronauts, like NASA astronauts. Um, you know, we, I've, I've often said that the um, 
path towards becoming an astronaut is littered with the hopes and dreams of medically disqualified candidates. Um, but that's not really what we found in suborbital spaceflight. It turns out it's actually quite safe. Um, what it, do you want to talk about some of our findings from that literature review on exactly who could fly um, and, you know, what kind of comorbidities and age um, demographics they represented? Sure. Um, so for that particular research project, we looked a lot at um, people who had gone through the centrifuge training or well, yes, centrifuge training that mirrored the flight of Virgin Galactic Blue Origin, those commercial space flight providers who are going to take people who are paying customers. Um, and really, like you said, what we found is that it was pretty safe, even in situations where you would think that maybe it wouldn't be people who had pacemakers, who had defibrillators, implanted defibrillators, who had known um, heart defects, known arrhythmias, um, diabetes, insulin pumps, all of those things that would put people in a more high-risk category, seizure disorders, all of those things. What we found is that those people tolerated those um, G-forces and the flight patterns extremely well. Um, the adverse events were very, very low, and I'm not, I don't, I don't think that we found any that were needed extreme intervention. Um, I think the one thing that struck me though, was that there was a case of a younger person who had no cardiac history whatsoever, who had a pretty significant arrhythmia for a significantly a sustained amount of time. However, um, it self-resolved and there was no intervention necessary and there was no adverse effect on the, on the person. So, um, it still, it still makes it very safe, but it also goes to show that even when there are no known factor, risk factors, things will still happen. And that's exactly, it's just like being in the hospital um, or being at the fair or being anywhere you are. There are, you know, you, you may have no known risk factors, but, but things happen all the time, right? And so I think it stressed the importance of preparedness um, and the other thing is that, you know, what we really thought would work well and those people who do have more higher risk comorbidities or who don't do well on initial screening, um, if we, t if we pull those people out and we provide some intervention and some additional training and some additional testing, um, there's really a very small amount of people who would not be safe to fly. Um, I think that the biggest thing is what is informed consent? So what can we inform people of that their risks are when this demographic has never really flown before? So um, that's where the, the continued research comes in so that we can say, you know, not just that the rocket you're flying on has passed all of these tests and these are your, this is your informed risk for the rocket you're flying on, but this is your informed risk for, your, for the health um, issues that you may have. And you also need to know that even if you have no known risk factors, that emergency still happens. So I think like those things are starting to get 
hatched out, right? But I think it's just in the very beginning stages. Um, so I think it was very encouraging to see that most people tolerate it well. Absolutely. And, you know, it's uh, what surprised me when we were doing the research was that, you know, as you say, anyone as old as 89, people with congenital heart defects, um, you know, pacemakers did very well. And the number one disqualifier was anxiety, panic attacks, we're doing something unsafe. And so um, really, it, it is opening up to space to to anyone to previously um, who would have been selected out. And we're actually seeing the rest of the commercial and governmental space sector start catching up to this. Um, the European Space Agency, ESA, just launched its para-astronaut call this year. Um, that wrapped up earlier this year, looking for the first astronaut with disabilities. Um, we've seen the rise of Astro Access, another program to fly those with disabilities in microgravity. Um, Stephen Hawking flew zero G um, as early as 2007. So this really is the beginning. Um, but as you say, we need more data. We need to, to gather that telemetry, um, you know, for the cases of the folks who were disqualified because of psychological factors or um, safety, you know, what are the predictors of that? Or in the case of the patient with the arrhythmia, you know, how do we, it, is it significant? Um, you know, in medicine, we say we treat the patient, not the numbers. So, um, you know, it's it's a really exciting time for commercial space flight. Um, it's also an exciting so time for, ex yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. So one thing that I was just going to add on to that is that I think that one one of the things that you have to consider when you're considering risk is the ability to um, help your crew, meaning the other passengers, in emergency egress, right? So um, the, the fights with disabilities, in no way should any of those people be excluded. Um, and so what I see that is the, the flight providers will have to get creative and come up with um, adaptations to the vehicles so that emergency egress is possible and safe and that everyone can be involved in it. And that's one of the main things with the psychological component as well is that, you know, um, people who, even people who don't exhibit anxiety on a regular basis, when they're in a confined environment, and let's say you're on the launch pad and you have a delay, um, there is a threshold, even for people who are trained, there's a psychological threshold um, for being in that enclosed environment and knowing that you're in a potentially dangerous situation. And so I think the main consideration is, are you able to perform emergency egress if, there, if you need to? And is there anything um, in your medical you know, history that will prevent that from happening, such as, you know, a diabetic who goes hypoglycemic and can't function. So it's just, it's not, it's not that any of these things disqualify. It's just, you have to make special considerations. You have to be prepared and in whatever form that, you know, emergency kit looks like inside of the spacecraft. 
Yeah, and I'm laughing a little bit because so much of space and even extreme environment medicine is playing the what if game as in what is the worst that could happen? And how can I prepare for this in the context of my constraints? And this is true for for so many of our listeners, even outside of space medicine, whether it's um, battlefield medicine, mountain medicine, um, you know, what what will the environment bring? And how do I prepare for that? And do I have the space and um, mass um, uh, budget for that. Um, so let's turn it to a different area of space in which you're first in exploration class missions. So anyone who is a fan of space um, knows that the international community has plans to go back to the moon um, and then Mars and hopefully beyond. And you've also published in this area on a variety of topics, space nutrition, spacesuits, lunar environments. Um, what was that research period like? Um, and, you know, what were some of your key findings, things that surprised you, big problems to be solved on the horizon um, that came about through through your writing? Yeah, so um, first of all, publishing anything is a lot of intensive research um, <laughs> and time. So um, I think that a couple of the things that stood out to me, really one is in the spacesuit chapter, you know, we realized that mobility in spacesuits has not always been optimal. Um, and having that mobility is really critical, especially for longer stays and for extended EVAs. And that's something that is in the works. That's not, you know, being overlooked. The things like the joints of the spacesuits, um, the boots, and the helmet even, like your field of vision. Um, so those are some really critical things that are evolving. Um, and then the, I think the thing that surprised me the most, not surprised me, I guess surprised is a good word, but um, in the nutrition chapter, when we're here on earth, we think of everything kind of, kind of almost, um, unless you're training for a specific event or you're really an athlete who watches exactly everything, we think of things kind of in macro, right? And we do a lot of supplementation. We do a lot of vitamins. In space, nutrition is very micro. Everything is very micromanaged down to the very last detail of how those nutrients, um, well, of, of how many nutrients you'll need. So your energy expenditure is different in space. So your calorie intake has to be adjusted. Um, and then you have to consider things like muscle wasting. So you have to ha add exercise, resistant exercise. So, and there's not a lot of supplementation, really just vitamin D. There's not a lot of supplementation that goes on. It all comes from the food that, that is served and the exercise that's done. And so it's a lot of countermeasures to try to mitigate things that may happen, but it's very micro. It's very detail oriented. And um, that, and it, and it, every system in the body is interconnected and it really comes out when you look at the nutrition that's necessary for space flight. And that was fascinating to me. Yeah, and um, I know we're, we're space nerding out. So just to define a few terms for, for those of us who may not be familiar. So EVA, extravehicular activity. Yeah. So that's just a spacewalk, whether it's outside the International Space Station or an Apollo moonwalk. And then countermeasures is fairly self-explanatory. But basically, you're trying to mitigate um, that muscle waste, muscle wasting or the bone density loss. Um, so then on that note, um, 
as, as a fun, fun bit of trivia, you are probably also aware of the um, famous NASA twins study, Scott and Mark Kelly, identical twins, NASA astronauts. One went to space for a year, one stayed on Earth, and they studied everything, as you say, down to the micro level, um, down to the DNA level, down to the molecular genetics level. Um, and it was, as you say, fascinating um, as a function of that heavy operational schedule, as a function of a different diet. Um, Scott Kelly, the twin who was in space for a year, lost lost weight um his gut micro microbiome totally changed um but then within six months of being back on earth it reverted to um his normal typical pre-flight bi- microbiome possibly um as a function of what he ate in space um did you come across the shelf life problem um, when you were researching space nutrition, um, particularly as we talk about longer duration missions and the problem of generating food, keeping food fresh and palatable for long-term? Did that ever come up in your research? Yes. So, you know, freeze-dried, sorry, freeze-dried versus vacuum-packed versus fresh food. You know, right now at the International Space Station, they do receive shipments of fresh food, but they have to eat it very quickly because it will, it will ruin um, very quickly, obviously. Um, when we talk about settlements on the moon, on Mars, um, let's talk particularly about Mars for a second. When you fly, you have to make sure that not only are you taking what you need, but everything weight-wise has to be check and balance, right? So you have to know that your payload is going to be carryable and you have an, a finite amount of space to fit all of your supplies, not just space, but weight allowance. So it's not like you can take tons and tons and tons of food with you. So so something that we'll have to develop is, for lack of a better term, space farming. Um, so growing crops in outer space environments, in environments that where the soil is different than what we're used to, where the water supply is different, the sunlight is different, um, so there are experiments going on right now in the International Space Station. They do grow food there. Um, they particularly, they grow mostly vegetables is what they grow. Um, they grow sometimes in pods. So there's a lot of different experiments going on. So um, dirt pods that are specially seeded. Um, there are experiments with growing seeds into plants without any need for soil without with just water um the other thing you have to think about is when you're in space when we're on earth roots grow down um water goes down to the bottom of the soil right when you're in space everything's there's no gravity for that to happen so everything is floating so you have to rethink how you're going to nourish the plants so there's a whole entire study of how to grow food in an off nominal or in non-earth environment right now um, with different soil types uh, without soil at all you know how do you make the water stay and not float away so all of that is being investigated right now because we if when we settle like let's say we settle mars or we colonize mars even a few people there's no way to take all of the food that we need yeah, absolutely. And um, the other part of it is how do we make it palatable to astronauts? Um, 
you know, uh, you know, as well as I do that taste is altered in space. Um, and it's crazy to think that things that you and I take for granted, like oranges are considered a luxury on the International Space Station, precisely because of what you said, because they're relatively heavy, they have that short shelf life. So I'm glad that, you know, it's the people like you are looking into this problem, and we're thinking about this problem. Um, the other thing I want to talk about is something else you're working on. So you have also, as of late, embarked upon a master's in human factors in aerospace. Um, what drew you to this field? Are you still in the fact-finding phase, or there's, did you come to this master's program with specific problems you wanted to solve? So not necessarily specific problems in my mind, that uh, questions that I had, but I just wanted to be able to take that specialty and really say, so I'll back up for a second, human factors, what does that mean, right? So it's how humans interact with the systems around them, but also how the body reacts. There's a lot of psychology. So making sure that things are fail safe and that uh, systems are designed um, so that there is that element of decreasing risk as much as possible. And it all just falls into line with not necessarily medicine, but the human body and how the human body works and how humans think and function. Um, there's also a lot of artificial intelligence and um, uh, things like that involved and really how humans interact and how we can use those technologies to make our space flights safer, to make them easier, and what the risks and benefits are. So it's just fascinating because you can then take that and say, well, what if I have AI flying on a flight and I am medically controlling or coordinating with AI who can provide healthcare on a flight without sending a human who's going to consume resources, right? So there, I, that sounds futuristic, but it's very much part of what's in development right now. And so it's very, it's very much, you can, um, it very much incorporates the human body, but also the human mind. And then you can incorporate MedOps into that, which is fascinating. Absolutely. Um, Let's switch tracks for a second. We've really delved into the technical stuff from human factors to future considerations for exploration class missions to the here and now and the rise of commercial suborbital spaceflight. But let's talk about um, drawing in the next generation because you and I know this, um, we're very committed to this, that women have typically been underrepresented in human spaceflight, in STEM, um, in STEM fields within space. Um, you are very dedicated to pushing the boundaries and lifting others up. Um, you are the chair for the Possum 13. So what exactly is that and what are you striving to do with this organization? Okay, so um, Possum 13 evolved out of Project Possum. Um, and it is a group of 13 female STEM ambassadors. The name is derived from the Mercury 13. They're kind of our model, our, our um, go-to, you know, what, who we look to for inspiration. So um, as ambassadors, our main, our goal is to reach out and really pull young women into STEM. And 
not only pull them in, but create opportunities, create equality. And with that comes not just involving young women, but also involving young men um, on teams where women are the lead. So that as these generations grow, it becomes the norm to work and cooperate together. And women feel like from a young age, they've been able to be involved on team on STEM teams and, and see themselves as equals and really provide opportunities. Um, so, you know, our, our main opportunity that we started the program with was a microgravity flight for 13 to 18 year olds who were teams of students who had to produce their own microgravity experiment and it had to be relevant to space or earth solving a problem or answering a question and then um, they were able to meet with us at the NRC in Canada and fly in a parabolic microgravity flight and do their experiment and um, if for me having had that having if I had had that experience I view it as life-changing I mean just to be able to participate in something like that gives you confidence and courage and encouragement. It really um, connects you with mentors who can be a good example for you and show you how to forge your path forward and what really interests you before you get the message as a young girl that this is not where you belong. Um, because I think that that mentality is evolving, but that's historically how it has been, right? And, and the teams that we work with have to be female-led, but also can have male participants so that, like I said, they grow up in an environment where it really is just the norm to be on a team together and encourage and cooperate with each other and collaborate. Right now, what, what we are focusing on because of COVID, our flights haven't been going, um, we've been grounded. So what we realized was that once girls get to middle school, where we start that contest, the way the US education system is set up, they generally are pigeonholed onto a, either a STEM track or not a STEM track based on how they test in their standardized testing. And so either that or by the time they get to age 13, they're already distracted and fallen off the train and they, they're not interested in STEM anymore. So, so really there are two really strong disqualifiers there, right? And so what we did as a team, we thought really we need to reach further down into the elementary schools, into younger kids and excite them. Um, and there's no better way to excite kids than to interact with them and let them see you doing what they think they may not be able to do, you know, giving kids the opportunity and saying, you can do this. Um, and showing that to them is really important. So that's what we are working on this year. Um, we're working on a weather balloon project so that kids learn that it can be exciting to do science, that it can be um, fascinating to come up with your own question and find the answer and solve it. And you know, really hands-on and interactive experience with them is what we are striving for right now. So um, that's where we are with the program, just really encouraging even down into younger years so that hopefully by the time they get to middle school where it's not cool anymore or they don't think they're interested, they still are. <laughs>
Absolutely. And, you know, um, you and I were lucky enough to fly with our first winner, Ivana Ivana Hernandez from Colombia. In 2019, we flew zero-G microgravity with her out of the National Research Council in Canada. Um, And, you know, she just blew us away with her... um, uh, payload as a 16-year-old that she developed looking at Laurentian forces. It was um, very physics-based. Um, and, you know, it's it's definitely, we, we get a lot out of this. Um, so absolutely, you know, this um, this push to to bring that passion for, for STEM, science, technology, engineering, math, medicine early, you know, it's, it's so critical. So thank you for, you know, being the, the lead on this. Um, and then just to, just to translate our jargon, I know we've been using the words possum and IIAS um, interchangeably. So um, those are part of the same organization, International Institute for Astronautical Sciences um, and possum polar suborbital science of the upper mesosphere. This is where Star and I have graduated from, um, have as uh, scientist astronaut program graduates. This is where we've done our spacesuit testing, um, just as a, just to loop the listener in. Um, Star, you are up to a ton. You are still doing this while working as a nurse in urgent care. Um, you clearly are just getting started on your path into space, operational space medicine, space nursing. What is next on the horizon for you? And what is your ultimate dream? You know, if anything is possible, whether it's a dream job or a dream contribution to space nursing. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what I would love is to contribute more to research. And one of the things that we found um, in our literature review when we were doing our, our research was that there was a gap in knowledge in terms of what would happen to the heart when you um, do the push-pull, right? So the studies that we had um, were centrifuge. So it could mimic the gravitational forces of spaceflight. But if you think about it, when you're taking off at 6G and then all of a sudden you have zero gravity, the heart muscles pull And there is some concern and a little bit of unknown there um, for people who have these comorbidities and risk factors um, on how the heart will react to that. Will that cause more arrhythmias? Will that cause more emergency events in people who who are predisposed to certain things like that? And so um, EKG tracings in that push-pull environment are something that really... Uh, something that really hasn't been studied. And so before we were grounded from flying with COVID, um, we were talking about doing, uh, I had I had talked about trying to get together a research study based on that for parabolic flight. Um, ultimately, I think like that would be the next step I would love to take is to kind of fill in that gap on, on what happens in, on EKGs when you experience that, that push-pull. Um, in people who are not necessarily medically screened as closely as in the past. Um, and then if you ask me my dream, my dream really is to be the first nurse in space. I mean, I, I really, that would be amazing to me, but I don't want that for the notoriety. I want it because I want to show that 
nurses can be such an integral part of the med ops process. So what I would really love is to, um, you know, have an experiment that really is nursing focused that I can take into space and make a contribution and, and really open up for future nurses and really show that nursing is or can be part of a STEM pathway or um, a multidisciplinary, valuable in a multidisciplinary team in space. Absolutely. And um, when you're talking about that push-pull, you're talking about that transition from hypergravity when you're accelerating to that transition into microgravity or zero-G. Is that is that correct? Yes. It's all, Yes. Um, yeah, absolutely. So it's when you're, you know, you have six Gs and you're, you're going fast, you know, hard, hard, hard. And then all of a sudden you're not, you know, it's almost like slamming on your brakes in a car, sort of like that, you know, you're going fast and then all of a sudden you're stopped. Um, and what that does to the body. And, and that's something that you can't really study as well in a centrifuge. Right. Absolutely. And then MedOps, just to translate that medical operations, um, that's, you know, that's, that's fantastic. And it's, it really is critical that we have this continued um, interest, these, this creativity of what hasn't been studied yet or what else are our blind spots. That's exactly the kind of thinking we need when we talk about making space accessible and then also going further and um, into the unknown than we've ever gone as humans. Um, as we wrap up here today, I think there's going to be so many out there who want to know more about you, um, more about your work. Where can people find you online um, to, to follow you on social media or to touch base? Well, uh, LinkedIn is a really great place. Um, it probably is the most where I, where I get the most professional contacts um, as opposed to personal social media. Um, tw you mentioned Twitter. You mentioned my Twitter handle. We both know that I'm not, I'm not very literate at Twitter, but I'm trying to get better. <laughs> so if you reach out to me there, I definitely will answer you. Um, it may just not be the most active person on Twitter. Um, and then Instagram and Facebook. I also, I, I recently just developed a, a Facebook page that isn't a personal page. It's specifically dedicated to my journey as in space medicine and forging the path for nurses in space medicine. It's just Star Schroeder RN. Um, so you can follow that page. So I would say probably LinkedIn and that page are the two most accessible and then um, followed by Twitter and Instagram. Perfect. Star Schroeder Astro RN. Thank you. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, all of them are listed under my name, um, two R's and Schroeder. And it's, I don't have anything fancy that you have to find me under. It's just my name pretty much. Perfect. Yeah, we will make sure that we include your handles in the show notes. Star Schroeder, Astro RN, thank you so much for being so gracious with your time and for joining us today to help define space nursing. Good luck to you in all of your pursuits. I look forward to continuing our collaborations in the future. To the listener, thank you so much for joining us today. We are always keen to hear your feedback. You can leave that on our social media pages or on SurveyMonkey um, if you're listening in through um, our, our Zoom platform. Um, that's all we got for you today. Hope to see you at the next WEMcast podcast.
Until next time. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.